Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello, all. We have another comedy today. Aristophanes' Thesmophoria Zuse, or Women at the Thesmophoria, also known as the Poet and the Women, even though that's not how the title translates. This is the second of the three plays in Jeffrey Henderson's Staging Women book that I used for Lysistrata, so of course that is the translation that I'm working from. And like Lysistrata, it premiered in 411 BCE, probably at Dionysia. It didn't win. The play takes place during the Thesmophoria. You may recall that Greek religious festivals tended to be segregated by gender. Well, uh, the Thesmophoria was one of the women's festivals. It was held each fall in honor of Demeter and Persephone. It celebrated fertility and the harvest. And since most of our records were written by men, we don't know exactly what happened or exactly where it happened or exactly which women were allowed to participate. So there's room for interpretation in modern productions. The poet in the title, when it is translated as the poet and the women, is that favorite target of Aristophanes, Euripides. We haven't gotten to Euripides yet, so we haven't read anything that Aristophanes parodies in this play, but if you've already read, you undoubtedly noticed the lengthy sections making fun of the works of Euripides. And naturally, this means that Euripides is one of the first characters we meet, along with his friend and kinsman, who is unnamed in Henderson's translation, but listed as Nasilicus in some of the other references I used to write this episode. The other named men in the play are Agathon and Cleisthenes. The named women are Mika and Critilla. Additional speaking characters are the usual servants, magistrates, heralds, etc. And the chorus is the titular women at the Thesmophoria, so a group of Athenian women. We'll take a quick break before going over the plot. When the play opens, Euripides and his elderly kinsmen enter. Euripides is very upset, but won't tell the kinsman why. They stop at one of the houses, and Euripides asks to see Agathon, a young, up-and-coming poet. Agathon enters dressed as a woman, which he explains is because the best way to write about a person is to inhabit them. So if he's going to write about women, he must look like a woman. It is this very form of method writing that has led Euripides to Agathon. You see, Euripides has learned that as part of the Thesmophoria celebrations, the women of Athens are plotting against him because they don't like the way they are presented in his plays. He wants Agathon, dressed as a woman, to infiltrate the Thesmophoria to plead his case. Agathon, however, wants nothing to do with this plot. But he does concede to letting Euripides borrow some clothes and a wig, which Euripides then convinces, or rather coerces, his kinsman into wearing. Euripides exits, and the scene shifts to the Thesmophoria. The kinsman takes a seat as the chorus enters, singing a prayer to pretty much the whole pantheon of Olympian gods. The herald calls the assembly to order. Mika stands, and the agon begins. Mika presents her argument against Euripides. She doesn't so much accuse him of slandering the women of Athens as she accuses him of telling the truth about the women of Athens. Euripides has not been kind to women in his plays, and Mika and the chorus are upset because he is revealing all of their secrets. He's just making it too hard to embezzle from the family funds. 
A second woman adds on to the charges, stating that her Myrtle business has completely dried up since Euripides started promoting atheism in his plays. On a side note, the ancient Greek word for Myrtle was also slang for a certain part of the female anatomy, so you have to wonder if she was selling Myrtle or if she was selling Myrtle. But ritual prostitution was part of some ancient cults, so whatever type of Myrtle she was selling, it could have been affected by a rise in atheism. On a major tangent, the Greek word is Myrene, which you may recall is the name of the woman in Lysistrata who has a lengthy scene in which she fends off the advances of her husband. But back to the Thesmophoria. The kinsman takes up the counter-argument, the Akon. He, too, isn't exactly thrilled with Euripides, but is the playwright really that bad? I mean, there are so many more faults and affairs that Euripides could write about, but he hasn't mentioned any of those things, so maybe the women should let him off? I mean, no one is as virtuous as Penelope, the wife of Odysseus, whom you'll get to meet when we get to the Odyssey. The Agon has nearly reached the point of an all-out brawl as the women prepare to attack the kinsmen for daring to speak on Euripides' behalf when Cleisthenes enters. Cleisthenes makes a much more convincing woman than the kinsman does, and he tells the women that a man has infiltrated their proceedings, a man who was sent by none other than Euripides. And it's pretty obvious who that man might be. The kinsman knows that the jig is up, and he snatches the baby from the arms of a woman Mika claims to be her wet nurse, except it turns out that the baby is in fact a very full wineskin. The kinsman is captured and held until the authorities can arrive and arrest him for infiltrating a women-only festival. Euripides tries to rescue him in a series of vignettes that parody a number of Euripides' plays, including Helen and Andromeda. And even if you aren't familiar with the originals, you can still appreciate the humor as the two men try to communicate in code that is drawn from Euripides' tragedies. Each attempt is thwarted, and Euripides finally appears as himself to plead for his kinsman's release. Euripides agrees to stop writing bad things about women, and the women agree. There are a few other things that happen, but the play ends rather abruptly once the kinsman is released. So we'll take a short break here. This play can be looked at from a few different directions. Is it a diatribe against women? Or is it a diatribe against Euripides? Or, of course, is it both? Obviously, the one does not preclude the other. Since we haven't gotten to Euripides in the Greek tragedy episodes yet, I'm not going to spend much time on that aspect of this play. We've already seen that Euripides is a frequent target of Aristophanes, a trend that we will continue to see, so I'm going to focus on the question of the women in this play. It is interesting to note that this play and Lysistrata premiered the same year, albeit at different festivals. The two plays are excellent foils for each other. In Lysistrata, we see all of the positive traits of women in general, and Athenian matrons in particular. In Women at the Thesmophoria, we see the opposite. It is also interesting to note that while both are purportedly gynocentric plays, there are significantly more named women in Lysistrata than in Women at the Thesmophoria. In his discussion, Henderson notes that it isn't so much the women who are being demeaned in, by this play as it is the men. After all, it is Euripides and the kinsmen who recite the parodies of the plays. 
Historically, this play continues the progression from old comedy to new comedy. There is an agon, but it doesn't follow the typical formula. And you'll note I never mentioned the parabasis. It's there, but I didn't mention it in the summary because it isn't your typical parabasis in which the chorus steps out of character and addresses the audience. I do, though, have a margin note from when I studied this play as an undergrad that says, women rock. So if you were wondering what the parabasis is about, that pretty much sums it up. What do you think? Which play do you prefer, Lysistrata or Women at the Thesmophoria? And what do you think was going on in Aristophanes' head that he wrote these plays around the same time? As always, the link to the blog post for this episode is in the show notes. On Wednesday, we'll continue the Iliad with Book 11. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.